If you have a Bible, go ahead and find John chapter 8. Again, I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving week with your family. I know for different reasons the holiday season is a bittersweet season for some people, a lot of people actually, sort of happiness mixed with sadness because of lost loved ones or any number of other things. But I'm, as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today and what today is, I'm just reminded that the Christian faith always speaks truth to, to us to shepherd us through the bittersweet moments, the sad moments of our lives, and to remind us that our grief will only be temporary, only for a season, and even while it's here, it, we don't grieve in a hopeless way. I think today's a good example of that because today is the first Sunday of Advent, Advent, and um, in the church, Advent, as you probably know, is the season leading up to Christmas, typically the four Sundays that, that lead up to Christmas. Today is day, day one, and the, the focus of Advent, uh, and you may have heard me say this before, but if you haven't, the focus of Advent typically, you might assume that the focus of Advent is on Christmas, on the birth of Christ. But, the, but historically in the church, this Advent season, the focus is on the second coming of Jesus. Um, and the, the word Advent, Adventus in Latin means coming or appearing, and, uh, and, and so the, 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 these weeks that lead up to, to Christmas, where we remember the first advent of Jesus, the first coming, the first appearing, we're actually on the way to that day being mindful that there will be a second advent, that he's going to come again. Um, and, uh, you know, um, one of my favorite, I just think about, oh, and I want to say this too, um, it, it's, it's funny that in, we're, we're sort of a, in a low church tradition, uh, Baptist, we're not, uh, we, we, don't, we don't wear robes and we don't have the, the candles and the, and, and, and full on uh, think about high churchy type things, but we do have our own mix of of that, in, in that we think about Advent, we think about Christmas, then we think about Palm Sunday, and we think about Easter. Those are things that are on the church calendar. There are other days on the church calendar that we don't ever think about. Uh, so, for example, we ha- we're in Advent right now. All those, all those events think about different aspects of the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. So, Advent is, is thinking about the second coming of Jesus. But you begin with Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, and then January the 6th uh, is Epiphany. By the way, it, I didn't know that for a long time. I didn't, I didn't grow up in a tradition that thought about the church calendar, and it always baffled me. I never knew why we had a song called the 12 Days of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, my, it's 12 days. I'm like, how are you, what do you mean 12 days? Well, from, Jan, from December 25th to January 6th is 12 days. So, it's actually the Christmas season, not just Christmas Day, but Christmas season up to January 6th, which is Epiphany, which in the church calendar remembers uh, the presentation of, of Jesus to the Gentiles in, in the visit of the wise men. Then after Epiphany, you go a long period of time in the year before you get to Lent, where Lent is remembering um, the life of Jesus lived for us and the suffering he went through, particularly distilled in the 40 days in the wilderness. Right? That's why it's 40 days. But leading up to Palm Sunday, and then Good Friday and his death for our sins, Easter, his resurrection. 40 days after that, 
in the church calendar, we have Ascension, where we remember, or we, excuse me, yeah, Ascension, where we remember that Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, 10 days after that, Pentecost. And then uh, you go this long period of time, about five months, where there is nothing on the calendar. It's called ordinary time. It's what we've been in for the last five months, which mirrors basically where the church is right now in between the times. Jesus has done all these things. He has lived. He has died. He has risen again. He has ascended. He has poured out his spirit. And we are in this, in this in-between time now, walking in the power of the spirit, waiting on the second coming, which is when you get to this point and you have Advent again, where you're thinking about the second coming. I think it would help us, I think, and sometimes even if we don't celebrated officially as a church in our minds think about those types of days throughout the year just to be reminded throughout the year have whole seasons where we're reminded of what jesus did for us in his life uh, why not have a whole whole season where we're thinking about the second coming why not have a whole not just one day but 12 days thinking about the god man coming and being born for our sins why not have 40 days where we think about the suffering that Jesus did, not just on the cross, but throughout his life for our sins. It would be good to have a whole, uh, our physical calendar structured in such a way that we're, we're, um, we're, as I heard it put one time, keep time in such a way that it helps you keep company with Jesus. You know, keep time in such a way that it helps you keep company with Jesus. Martin Luther even said, that he loved the church calendar. It was a good way to, to catechize the children or to teach them the basics of the faith. You have these days where we think about the life of Christ. It was an easy way to teach children about the, about the, about the life of Jesus Christ. But anyway, here we are in Advent, and, and, and sort of we got Christmas trees up here. We're thinking about Christmas coming up. But let's not forget that this season is about the second coming. And we think that Jesus is coming. We know that Jesus is coming again. One of my favorite I, I, I think I read this quote to you guys last year, but I think I'm going to make it an annual thing because I love the, the quote so much. Um, Fleming Rutledge uh, was a uh, lady, a theologian, who wrote a book on Advent a couple of years ago. And in that book, she, she's thinking about this, this fact that you have these weeks leading up to Christmas, Christmas which celebrates the first coming of Jesus, but in the weeks leading up to it, we're thinking about the second coming of Jesus. And... She's saying, isn't that backwards? Shouldn't we think about the first coming leading up to a time where we think about the second coming instead of a second coming period leading up to the first coming? And she says, she says Advent is preeminently the season of the second coming. But does Advent run backwards? The moment is from the second coming to the first coming. doesn't seem to make sense. The season begins with the last things, and ends with the nativity in Bethlehem. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Not really. The rhythm of the church's seasons turns out in this, as in so many other ways, to be theologically profound. If we began with the nativity and then moved to the last judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ in power seriously. The solemnity and awe do not lie in the fact that the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this, the eternal judge, 
very God of very God, creator of the worlds, the Alpha and the Omega, has become that little baby. That's, that's, that's rich, and that's a good thing to keep in mind. How, how is that, as, as, we, as we think about uh, his second coming, and remember that his second coming is going to be nothing like his first, we remember that it's because of what he has done at his first coming that those who put their faith and trust in Christ have nothing to fear at his second coming. It's just a good word of hope for this season. So we follow hard after him. And we want to be found faithful when he comes, but um, Jesus is the one who makes us ready for that day. He, he, in the fullness of time, came, was born under the law to redeem those of us cursed under the law. So anyway, um, it's a good time then to get back in, in John's gospel. And uh, if you're in John chapter 8, we're going we're gonna to think through another I am statement. Um, that, that teaches us so much about the Lord Jesus who came and who is coming again. Um, just to be reminded of why these I am statements are, are important to notice. We've already looked at one of these back in John 6. Why these I am statements are so important to notice and think through. Um, their significance because it, and you, you probably already know this, but hear it again, it's the, it's the name by which uh, God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush uh, in Exodus chapter 3. Um, I am who I am. Remove your shoes. The, the, the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Uh, and, and it's significant because m- more than once, Jesus publicly took that name for himself. For example, in, in John 6, when, we talk, talk, uh, when Jesus was walking on the water, we mentioned this then, when he was walking on the water, uh, his disciples were afraid when they saw him, and he said, do not be afraid, I am. He didn't say, I'm he. He's not just saying, don't worry, it's just me. Don't be afraid, I am. If he was just saying, it's just me, that wouldn't have given them any reason to not be freaked out by the fact that he was walking on the water. I know it's just you, but have you noticed what you're doing? No, when he said, don't be afraid, I am, that would have not only identified who he is, but then given the explanation as to how he was doing what he was doing. In in revealing himself to his disciples with that name, it is both comforting and explains the miracle. Or as we'll see later in John's gospel, when, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in John chapter 18, and, and Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, in your Bible, it'll say, I am he. In, in, in the original language, he said, I am. And when he said, I am, it says the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. Roman soldiers didn't really have a habit of doing that, especially to an unarmed, lowly Jewish man. But it was involuntary in that case because... Jesus wasn't merely a lowly Jew, but he was God standing before them. And he let it be known with, the, with the, the, the name that he took for himself, I am. And this was anticipate. Their, their, their drawing back and falling on the ground was anticipating the day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, a couple of weeks ago, like I said, we talked about John 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And we considered the Old Testament background that he uh, gave 
uh, uh, that image that he gave of himself, and we talked about how it shows us that Jesus was claiming to be God, and also that when he came, uh, and he came to save us from death, it, he was doing it in, in, a, in a way that is filled out and given meaning by the provision of that manna in the Old Testament, which saved them from, from physical death, and not only to save us, but to satisfy us. We talked about how interesting it was in the image itself that, that the very first image that Jesus chose to take on for himself was bread. <laughs> um, not a hammer, not a sword, bread. Like that's the image that he, that's the very first image he, he, he chose to take for himself. Life-giving, satisfying bread. Whoever eats that bread will never be hungry again. That's what he said in John 6. Well, today, we're, we're going to begin our look at John chapter 8 um, with a second I am statement in the gospel. He, he'll actually make it here in John 8 and then again once more in John 9. And this time he reveals himself saying, I am the light of the world. And uh, such a beautiful phrase, one that's also rich in background just like the other one. So, John 8 is a long chapter. This is not all we're going to say about John 8. I, I plan to, to um, give greater attention to the rest of the chapter next week, Lord willing, if any of you are here. Uh, if you're not, you can listen to it on the podcast. But um, John 8 is so long and so important that I don't think we'd be able to give the I am statement here the attention it deserves if we didn't give it its, its own week. So as we think through it, I want to structure it in the same way we did the last one, uh, which if you're taking notes, we'll think first about the background, the background to uh, this I Am statement, especially as it pertains to the Feast of Booths that uh, we mentioned last week. The background, and then, and then we'll continue to flesh out the significance. That's the second point, the significance of it for us, taken from the image itself. In the same way that we, we looked at the background to the bread imagery, the background, the Old Testament background, the the, the feast background of bread, but then we said, okay, but what about the image of bread itself? Well, what about the image of light itself? Not just the background of it. What is that image, apart from the, the Old Testament or just the, the very image itself? Why is that significant? So that's how we're going to flesh this out today. But we need to read the passage. So if you've found John 8, we're actually going to begin in verse 12, read through verse 20. And then we're actually going to skip over to chapter 9 and read the first seven verses. So, uh, if you found that place, follow along with me as I read. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and, I, and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. 
9, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth, <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray before we begin. Father, this, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. There's so much here. I, I pray that as we try to dive into the, the simple but profound um, name, I am the light of the world that you would give us eyes to see the truth in it. That you would give us minds to understand what the Lord Jesus is saying about himself. That you would give us uh, not just eyes to see it and minds to understand it, but hearts to embrace and not just love the truth, but love Jesus as he reveals himself to us here. And wills to obey whatever it is that would be the appropriate response to this word. Give us all ears to hear, I pray. Give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, let's take a closer look at the text. And, and I said earlier that next week we're going to consider the rest of, of chapter 8. Uh, and I'll say more about this then. But I will say, I will mention something about this passage in our, in our Bibles. Go back to chapter 8. Um, and about the, the passage that runs actually from chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. So 753, which actually, it's at the beginning of chapter 8 in your Bible, through, through chapter 8, verse 11. You probably have a note in your Bible, like I do, at the beginning of that, that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Um... Well, that's exactly what it says. <laughs> the, 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 when, as as, as uh, the Bible was copied and copied and copied and copied, the manuscripts were copied and copied and copied. Um, as, as we have discovered earlier and earlier manuscripts, uh, in a lot of these earlier manuscripts, that passage doesn't appear. But what is true also, that, that that story of Jesus and the woman called in adultery, which we're not going to think about today, but it does have a bearing on what we do talk about today, uh, it does appear in a lot of manuscripts. The problem is, uh, it's, it shows up in a lot of different places in the manuscripts. So, uh, some manuscripts have it where it is right now in your, in your Bible, uh, but some manuscripts have it beginning right after chapter 7, verse 36. Some manuscripts have it later in John chapter 21. Some manuscripts don't even have it in John's gospel at all, but have it in Luke's gospel in chapter 21. Why do I say all that? All that to say, I don't think it's wrong necessarily to include it in our Bibles. I think the fact that a lot of um, uh, manuscripts 
including this story and the story itself, it fits into the life of Jesus from everything else we know. So I think it, it, it is very likely that it was a genuine account of something that happened in Jesus. I just don't know that it should be right here in John's gospel because, because um, it seems to break the flow of thought that would otherwise flow seamlessly from 752 to chapter 8, verse 12. The way that it's written here with this story of the woman caught in adultery stuck between those two passages uh, makes it sound like what we read here in chapter 8 is sometime later after the events in chapter 7. Uh, because, I mean, chapter 7, verse 53 says, they, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, which would mean, if that's true, that this was not taking place on the same day as the events of chapter 7. But uh, what Jesus says beginning in chapter 8, verse 12, fits exactly with what he had already been saying in chapter 7. So the, the flow of thought is seamless. Also, the significance of what he says, I am the light of the world, has everything to do with when he's saying it. And it's not some day later when it would be after the feast, but it would be during the feast as we're going to see. Um, so I think, I think all that to say, pluck that out of your Bible for a now. Don't throw it away because I think it's a real story. Just I don't know that this is the place to put it. So imagine that this is not here and that we're, we're in the same chapter. Uh, we're, we're, we're flowing. We're in the same story that we just left in chapter 7. And, and, and in that light, Let's, let's, let's uh, think through some of the background of what Jesus says when he says, I'm the light of the world, because it's necessary to see the full meaning of it. As we think about the background to the I am statement that Jesus makes here, let's start with the gospel of John as a whole, um, because the imagery that Jesus uses here of light, I'm the light of the world, the imagery that Jesus uses has a little history for us already in John's gospel. The anticipation for this statement, the anticipation for I am the light of the world, has been building literally since the opening words of the book. I mean, if you look back in chapter 1, and the very first chapter, the very opening verses of the whole gospel, we read about Christ in chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. Now, I remember when we talked about these opening words, under the tent back in a steamy August day, steamy August morning, um, that, that I didn't actually spend a great deal of time on verse 4. I, I remember spending a, a little bit of time on verse 3 that showed that Jesus was the creator of all that is, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I, I talked about how the fact that it says he created everything that was created that it shows his deity because creation out of nothing is something that only God can do. And if Jesus did that, testimony that he is God. But there is also, in verse 4, claim to the deity of Jesus uh, in the combination of the, the themes of life and light. How? Because it, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. How so? Because when you go to the Old Testament, those two themes, life and light, are also spoken of in reference to God. So in Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light. That is said of God in the Old Testament and now of Jesus 
in the New Testament. John chapter 1, just a few verses later in John chapter 1, Jesus said in verses 9 to 13, the true light which enlightens, or John says this, the true light which lightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the true light coming into the world. Then, if you flip over to chapter 3, remember we came to John chapter 3, the most well-known chapter in John's gospel, and right after the most probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, uh, at least in the Gospel of John, that would be John 3.16, Jesus said in verses 19 to 21, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there, in sort of a coded language, Jesus is referring to himself as light that has come into the world. And even more than that, the, the, the light that everyone will have to respond to, because the whole point here is light has come into the world. How have people responded to him? Right? He says, judgment has come into the world when he says light has come into the world. So that theme, this theme about Jesus being the light has been building in the gospel of John since the very first chapter, the very opening words of the gospel. And so if you were reading this whole gospel like in in one sitting at one time, you might get to chapter 8 and read verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world and sort of be unfazed by it. It just wouldn't catch your attention at all because since the very opening words of the gospel, Jesus has been saying, I'm, light has come into the world. The true light was coming into the world. Light, 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 light. And now Jesus stands up in chapter 8, I'm the light of the world. And, it's, and, 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 and you've sort of grown accustomed to this imagery about Jesus. And if it ever had a, a, a shock factor to it or if it ever had a grab your attention kind of thing, it's sort of muted at this point because when Jesus stands to say, I'm the light of the world, it's like the fourth or fifth time that something like this has said about Jesus. But very much like we saw last week in chapter 7 when Jesus invited the people to come to him and find living water, when Jesus stood up in John 8, and this is why I said the whole bit about take out the woman caught in adultery here and let it flow seamlessly out of chapter 7, If that's true, and this is on the same day, when Jesus stood up and said in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, it would have been like a bomb going off um, to those who heard him say it. I mean, as as much or more so than what he said in chapter 7 when he said, come to me and drink. Even more than that, why? Because remember where and when Jesus said this. Where and when? Where was he? Where was he? Well, if you're looking in chapter 8, if you just skip down to verse 20, it tells you where Jesus was. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. He's in the treasury in the temple in Jerusalem. I'll come back to that in just a second. But first, do you notice um, 
in that, in that verse why I said, uh, when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, it would have been like a, a bomb going off if you're looking at verse 20, because if it wasn't like a, a ground-shaking kind of statement to make, why would, isn't, an odd, isn't verse 20, it's not an odd way to end verse 20 if, if it wasn't that. Uh, nobody arrested him. <laughs> These words he said in the temple, but nobody arrested him. Because his hour, okay, well, okay. I mean, what, what he said, though, when he said, I'm the light of the world, could have easily gotten him arrested uh, by the Jewish authorities, the same ones who, by the end of the chapter, will want to stone him to death. Why could they have gotten him arrested for saying, I am the light of the world? Well, first, it's another I am statement. We've already seen how that's the divine name, and Jesus is again taking it for himself. Something he didn't do when he said, come to me and drink. And, and rivers of living water will flow out. He didn't use an I am statement there. He does here. But for another, remember when Jesus said it. He's standing in the temple, in the treasury of the temple, and when he said this, what time of year was it? Remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, it was significant that he said he's the bread of life during the Passover, which provided a rich background of um, what Jesus meant by that I am statement. And remember from last week in chapter 7, we read in verse 2 that it said that the, the, feast, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So when Jesus stood up, if this isn't the same story, basically, even though it's a different chapter, when Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world, he wasn't only in Jerusalem, but he was in the temple in Jerusalem, and not just at any time, but during the Jewish Feast of Booths, which is enormously significant, not just because all of the Jews would have been in Jerusalem for that feast, and, and so it would have had maximum impact, but more so because of what the Feast of Booths remembered and how they celebrated it, which was what? Recall what we said last Sunday, because I mentioned some of this last Sunday. The Feast of Booths in the Jew, in the, of, of the Jews was remembering and celebrating how God miraculously provided for the people as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness after the Exodus. And, 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 it, and the Jewish Feast of Booths remembered two things specifically. And I just mentioned one of them last week. The first thing it remembered and celebrated, which we talked about last week, was God providing water for them out of the rock. Two times in the Old Testament, they struck the rock and water gushed out for their thirst and uh, that was the background to Jesus saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, when he said that, we talked about this last week, I am the fulfillment of what that water from the rock was pointing forward to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock was Jesus. It was an Old Testament picture of Christ. And he's saying, that the water that flows from it is, is, is um, the salvation that he was coming to provide, but not like water that would satisfy for a little while, like in the wilderness, but water that would satisfy you forever. That was, that was pictured during the Feast of, of, of Booths, like we said, when the, remember the priests would, uh, would walk, they would, I, I didn't mention this last week, they would walk in a procession down to the pool of Siloam, gather water, come back to the altar, and, and would pour out the water around the altar, and as they poured, the people would all recite together Isaiah 12, 3. 
And Jesus was saying as they poured that water, that's me. That's me, right? I am the fulfillment of what that Old Testament picture was just picturing. I'm the reality, right? When I'm sacrificed for your sins and you come to me for life and come to me for for forgiveness, it will satisfy you. But the second thing that was remembered in the Feast of Booths, which I did not mention last week, was also in the same time period of wilderness wandering, how God provided for them. What was the second way that God provided for them? Not, he provided manna, which was chapter 6, water from the rock, chapter 7, but also through a, a cloud, a pillar of cloud in the day and fire by night to lead them in the wandering. Pillar of cloud and fire, uh, cloud by day, fire by night. And to remember this provision in the wilderness, the priest would light four huge candelabras in the temple uh, courtyard. Four huge candelabras at night that each had four different lamps on them. Uh, and, and so they would light these. I mean, 16 enormous lamps of, of light that would illuminate the whole courtyard of the temple. Uh, some, some say it would light the whole city, but I don't know. But it had to be something incredible to see. I mean, it was probably pretty breathtaking to be in the temple at all, especially probably at night with these huge lights being lit, especially as you're remembering how God led the people of Israel in the wilderness by fire, a pillar of fire at night. And it's probably on that, remember, remember um, chapter 7, verse 37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I believe it's on the same day, probably the the, the evening of that same day when Jesus invited them to come and drink, he stands up in the evening hours after those lamps had been lit and they light up the night sky that Jesus stood and said, I'm the light of the world. He's literally saying, I was the pillar that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. I led the people. And I'm not just these lights in the temple Um, And I don't just light up the temple. I don't just light up the city. I'm the light of the world. And if you're paying attention, I just alluded to this, you're starting to see a pattern in John's gospel, in in, in this neighborhood of John's gospel. In chapters 6, 7, and 8, Jesus is giving, John is giving us a, a series of images from the wilderness wanderings claiming, where Jesus is claiming that he is those things that those things were pointing forward to. Or that he was in those things as God was appearing to those people in them. In chapter 6, he was the manna from heaven in the wilderness. In chapter 7, he was the water from the rock. In chapter 8, he's the pillar of cloud and fire that led the people. But what was Jesus actually saying when he said he was the pillar of cloud and fire? Again, he's claiming to be God when he says that. Because notice carefully, listen carefully how the Old Testament itself describes that pillar of cloud and fire. Here's what we read in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and a pillar of, at night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. When the pillar of cloud and fire went before the people, the text of Scripture says it was the Lord going before them. Just th- this same picture 
shows up again and again and again. You have, you have in, the, in, the, in the story of the covenant that God made with Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep. And how does the presence of God appear to Abraham? In a smoking fire pot. So you've got cloud and fire. Then you, then you come to the, to the wilderness wanderings, and how does God lead them in a pillar of cloud and fire? Then you have the temple coming, and you have uh, the glory of the Lord resting in a cloud on the temple. And then you have uh, Moses on the mountain, right? And, and how, when they see, they see lightning and fire and smoke and the presence of the Lord pictured there. And you have on the Mount of Transfiguration all this imagery. When the, when the fire and, and, and pillar of cloud and fire were leading the people, the text says it was the Lord who was going before them. So no wonder John was sort of astonished and felt compelled to mention that he amazingly was not arrested when he said this. In the verses that follow, which we'll consider next week, the Jewish leaders argue with him over his authority to say these kinds of things and would by the end of the chapter quit arguing and, and, and try to stone him to death. For blasphemy, but knowing that's the background of this statement, what's the significance of it? Let's think about that very quickly. Knowing that he was claiming, claiming to be God himself, that's the question in this imagery. Um, are they going to follow Christ? Or remember, um, that, that echoes back to John 3, when Jesus says, the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. They did not come to the light because their deeds were evil. The whole point of light coming is how do you respond to that light? That's the question here. Are they going to follow Christ as those in the wilderness followed the pillar of cloud and fire? Hence, Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, he's already given the answer back in chapter 3 to Nicodemus that people by nature love the darkness rather than the light. And Jesus seems to reinforce this truth the second time in chapter 9, verse 5. Remember what it was uh, that we read there. There was a man there who was blind from birth and, uh, and who was a beggar there by the pool of Siloam. This man sat among the beggars at the pool, and Jesus walks to him, spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on the man's eyes, kind of gross. Then he washes it off, and he can see. It's in that episode that Jesus said for the second time, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Why this episode? Why a blind man? He's saying not only is he light in the sense that he is the fulfillment of the pillar of cloud and fire, not just to save the people in the wilderness, but to save people from their sins. He's also saying that in this episode of blindness, what Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the light of the world. And to save us, he, he, he not only has to shine in the world, but he has to shine in our hearts. Otherwise, we, we see, but we don't see. But to those who do see his light and follow him, just like we see in Exodus 13, 22, that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. So Jesus never leaves nor forsakes those who come to him. He is the light of the world. We have a few minutes before we 
uh, in today. So we're, I want us to break up in, in groups and, and, and pray. And in light of what Jesus says here, I am the light of the world, um, just a couple of ways to guide you as you pray. Just thank him for shining in the world, like living a, a life of obedience for you, dying for your sins, and for you hearing the message uh, of his grace to you, but also for shining in your heart. And you saw Jesus for who he is and, and came to him in repentance and faith. And then just be honest about your struggles and, 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 and thank God for uh, how he promises in Christ to be a light for you in the, in the darkest times of your life. Maybe there's a few ways that you could pray and reflect on this statement. So take the few, next few minutes uh, to pray together, and I'll close this out in just a few minutes.